Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. If you have your Bibles, you can be opening to Matthew chapter 5. As we uh, turn our attention to the Sermon on the Mount, we have arrived in the chronological look at the life of Jesus Christ to this incredible kingdom manifesto, as uh, Trey and I like to call it. Uh, He did a great job kind of giving us the overview of the sermon last week, and this week we're going to dive deep into the words of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5, probably the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world uh, we have in front of us. How awesome is that, that we get to hear the words and the teachings and preachings of Jesus Christ himself right here on this page for us. I hope that you recognize what an amazing gift that is to have the words of Jesus right here for us to read and study and dive in together. Now, most of us who are here today uh, have vehicles. In fact, if I were to guess, uh, if you have more than one person at your house, you probably have more than one vehicle. And so let's imagine for a second that your car is running poorly. Rather than purr like a kitten, it has the cough of a a five-pack-a-day smoker. Uh, Rather than gliding down the road like a luxury liner, it yanks and it jerks like a bull in a rodeo. And so you're concerned, and you're not a mechanic, and so uh, you take your car to this mechanic... And uh, he comes out and he says, hey, let me take a look at your car, and I think I have exactly what your car needs. And so you say, okay, great. And what happens, though, is he goes behind uh, his desk and he comes back, not not holding a, a screwdriver, not holding pliers, not holding any gauges. No, he comes out holding a can of car wax. And he says to you, I know exactly what your car needs. Let me, she needs a great wax job. Just let me have her for an hour. And if if you'll give me that, man, it'll be, it'll be great. It'll be awesome. You're not a mechanic. You, You think that's a little strange, but you say, okay. So you leave your car with this guy and you come back an hour later and man, your car looks amazing. It it is, it is polished. It shines. And you hop in enthused thinking, man, now this car's going to go. But go, it does not. (laughs) It looks good, but it still doesn't go. It sparkles, but it's still slow. Out comes the mechanic again. I know the problem. Let's paint it. (laughs) And you leave your car with this guy, and he paints it fire engine red. And you come back, and the car's never looked better. I mean, the outside is so good. It has looked so good. You you jump in, and, and you think, man, now, but no. It still runs horrible, even though it's sparkling and freshly coated with paint. But this well-meaning mechanic doesn't give up. He's got all kinds of solutions to your car's problem. Let's put a new roof on it. How about some white wall tires, some, some fender guards, some fog lights? And everything that he does adds zest to the outside of your car, but it does nothing to put zip on the inside. Nobody, you look at a story like that and you say, nobody would be that foolish, right? Nobody uh, would do that. Nobody would spend all of this time, nobody would concentrate on the outside when everyone knows that the problem is on the inside. I mean, who would do that, right? Who would focus on the outside when the problem obviously is on the inside? 
You really want to know the answer to that question? Take a look around. A young wife battles with depression, suggested solution by some misguided mechanic. Why don't you go on a shopping spree? Go buy a new dress. A husband seeks advice for his marriage that is riding on the crest of a wave about to be slammed into the rocks. A suggested solution? Just bail out. A dying church flounders like a fish on a beach. What can be done to bring new life into the congregation? Let's build a building, someone suggests. And we could go on and on and on talking about the ways that you and I address the outside but never get to the heart of the matter. Case after case after case of treating the outside while ignoring the inside. Are we not guilty of the same thing? Polishing the chrome and neglecting the, in the engine? Because that young wife, man, she feels great for a day and then the shadows return and the husband trades in his wife for a new model and the result is happiness for a minute and then the same personality traits that got him in trouble the first time go to work again. The church meets proudly in their new building for a few months but then the flame flickers and dies leaving a cold church in a new building. The exterior is polished but the interior is corroding because all of these things are only cosmetic changes that are simply skin deep. And this is why, in my opinion, the religious leaders of his day and Jesus were always singing different tunes. You see, the religious leaders thought that as long as the outside looked okay, as long as you were going through the motions, an outside reformation, that's all you need, according to them, that would be sufficient. As long as you appeared to be righteous, that was enough. Jesus, however, especially in this sermon, takes them to the heart of the problem, which was and continues to be a problem of the heart. And my guess is there are at least a few of us who are here today whose walk with God, like that car we began with, is kind of sputtering along. And I just want to tell you that the remedy is found right here in these words of Jesus Christ. And the only question that we really need to tackle this morning is, are we going to allow these words of Jesus from Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to transform our hearts, to transform our lives? And I know that sometimes we can come to a sermon like this and we can say, well, you know, Jesus' world was just so different. It's so foreign uh, to our day that we live in today. And certainly technology and many other things has transformed the world uh, that we live in. So it is different than the world Jesus lived in, but really not that different. People are still people. We still do the same things. It's still a world where it's easier to define life and even faith and religion by the externals, by what we do. But Jesus comes along and he offers us a different way to live. He says the way we should be living is life lived under the rule of God. And Matthew boils Jesus' message down to this. We, as followers of Jesus, should change our lives in view of the reign of God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, <clears throat> Jesus' traveling sermon is simply this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as Trey showed us last week, the Sermon on the Mount is really just an expansion of that theme. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. It has arrived. It's at hand. And Jesus is going to show his ministry team, his guys who are walking with him, who have made the decision to follow him. He's going to show them and anyone gathered there on that mountain what living for God looks like. <laughs> Jesus said, follow me to his disciples because... 
in him, the living God was doing a new thing. A, a very, very new thing. And, and this is, this, this list is, is this sermon is, is, a, is wonderful news. It's, it's part of his invitation to us. It's his summons. It's part of his way of saying that God is at work in a fresh way. And here's what the work of God looks like. Jesus is beginning a new era for God's blessed and God's world, God's people in God's world. And that wonderful news that Jesus brings, uh, that, that, that word uh, that he uses over and over and over again here in the first 12 verses is blessed. God is acting through Jesus to turn the world upside down, to pour out lavish blessings on all who would now turn to him and accept this new thing that he is doing. New wine can't be put into old wineskins. We've talked about that. And Jesus is saying, here's the new that I'm bringing. Here's the new that I'm giving. And those who follow Jesus, hopefully that's us, those who follow Jesus, we are to begin to live by the rules that he establishes for us here and now. You see, the sermon is about Jesus calling people to live now in a way that will make sense in God's promised future. I want you to think about that. This sermon is God calling us to live now as he is, everyone's going to live in his promised future. And that promised future has begun in Jesus Christ. So let's look at this sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the pure in, poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. I love how Jesus begins this sermon. He doesn't begin this sermon with commands. Do this, do this, do this. No, uh, there are plenty of commands that he's going to give us in this sermon, but that's not how he begins the sermon. He doesn't begin with a command. He begins this sermon with a blessing. And verse 3 may be my favorite verse in the whole sermon. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that is an absolutely loaded term. I, I, many of you are familiar with a man named Randy Harris, who's a, a Bible teacher in Texas, and he has written a book called Living Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. I, I, I really enjoyed that book. If you can get your hands on it, I would encourage you to do so. But he says that this idea of poor in spirit actually points back to a Hebrew word uh, called anawim. I don't know if I'm saying that properly or not, uh, but anawim is the word. And the best way to understand that word is to think back to the children of Israel in the Old Testament when they were taken captive, when they were in slavery, right? You see, not everyone was taken when captivity came. The enemies would only take those who were useful. And if you weren't useful at all, guess what? You got left behind. And those useless people were called anawim. They were the pathetic. They were the pitiful. They were the worthless. 
Now, this is important because at some point or another in all of our lives, we are going to feel like an anawim. We're going to feel pathetic and worthless and pitiful. Maybe some of you sitting in this auditorium right now are feeling a little of that in your life. You may feel that way when you walk into your house. You may feel that way in a relationship that has gone sour. You may feel that way, God forbid, but you may even feel that way when you walk into a church building. But I need you to hear this. No one is too pathetic, too pitiful. No one is too worthless for God's love. And in fact, the first words out of Jesus' mouth is not only to affirm that God loves you, but no, he wants to give us a blessing Because the bottom line is this, Jesus is most concerned about the condition of the heart. And so instead of praising the wealthy, he gives God's blessing to the poor in spirit, to the mourners, to the meek, to the hungry and thirsty, to the merciful, to the pure in heart, to the peacemaker and the persecuted. We call these the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. And these are not intended to be impossible demands that we can never live up to. No, No, instead, these Beatitudes are there to remind us that God loves us. And it's there to remind us that the same God who gives us new life, the same God who loves us so much, wants and expects a new way of living from us. I need you to take that with you today. This God who loves us so much, who sacrifices for us, who blesses us at every possible turn, expects a new way of living from his people. And he identifies what that new way of living is right here. You see, it's not right for someone to welcome the blessing of God without also accepting the new life in God. Uh, There's another author who has a term for people who want God's blessings without actually changing their lives. This author calls them practical atheists. A practical atheist is someone who believes in God, but they live and they act as if he doesn't exist. At the end of this sermon in Matthew chapter 7, we have those Lord, Lord statements. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? And, and Jesus says, depart from me, right? The person cries out to God, but they won't change their life. And anyone who cries out to God but won't change their life, God's not impressed with. And so I want to ask you something. What is it that you're craving right now? What do you crave in your life? I mean, what do, you, what do you desire more than anything else in your world? What is it that you crave? And it seems as I look around in our world that, that a lot of people crave happiness, right? We, we say things like, if I could just get the right job, or if I could just marry the right person, or if I could just get the kids through college, oh, I know about that one, then I would be happy, right? Other people search for happiness and sexual conquests and drugs and alcohol, education, new relationships. The pursuit of happiness is strong in us. After all, our founding fathers said it was an inalienable right that we all have. But here's the thing about happiness. You don't find happiness by pursuing it. (laughs) That's not how you find it. You don't get it by chasing it. It's kind of like sleep. (laughs) If you want to try to go to sleep, it doesn't happen. You just got to kind of let it happen on its own, right? Happiness, though, is fleeting. 
It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And so Jesus is saying, I need you to crave something broader, something deeper, something more significant than that. And there's one beatitude here uh, that I think sums it all up. He says in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're going to be filled up. So what do you crave? What are you hungering and thirsting for? Are you, are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness or for something else? Because notice, that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness. Instead, he says, I'm going to give God's blessings to those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now listen, I believe this. I believe every single one of us sitting in this auditorium today wants significance in our existence. We want our lives to matter. We want our lives to mean something, Right? The question is, where do we turn for that significance? I thought about singing an old country song for you. Looking for love in all the wrong places. That's us, though, isn't it? Often, we want our lives to matter, but where are we turning to find that significance? Let me just share with you a couple passages. Psalm chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. And you tell me, what do you think the psalmist's attitude? What do you think he's craving, right? He, he leaves no doubt. As a deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Is that you today? Are you hungering and thirsting? Are you craving righteousness, more of Jesus in your life, more of his uh, existence in you? John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus is telling a listening crowd, I am the bread of life. And listen, if you'll come feast on me, he says, you will never hunger. And if you'll believe in him, you'll never thirst. What do you crave with all that you have in you? Uh, What is it uh, that that gets you up in the morning and gets you out the door? What what do you desire? What are you chasing after? Acts chapter 17, Paul says in his sermon on uh, Mars Hill in verse 28, it's in him, it's in Jesus that we live and move and we have our very being. Is that true of you this morning? That in Jesus you live, in Jesus you move, in Jesus you have your very being. Colossians chapter 1, excuse me, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Because, listen, you're a different person because of Jesus. And then he says in verse 3 that when Christ, and, he, and I love this, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will appear with him in glory. What do you crave What are you thirsting for? What are you hungering for? Now that word righteousness that Jesus uses here is used in different ways throughout the Bible. You know, when Paul uses the, uh, the word righteousness during uh, the epistles that we read in Galatians, Ephesians, and other places, he is talking about something that God declares us to be. So when he says righteousness, he's talking about what scholars call forensic righteousness. And and forensic righteousness basically says we could never be morally right before God because all of us have already blown that. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we don't deserve anything good that he might bring us, but God brings it to us anyway. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in and through him, right? And so something God declares us to be for Forensic righteousness, that's one use of this word, but that's not the word that Jesus is using here in this sermon. Jesus uses a different word altogether. He uses the word in a different sense. 
Here, Jesus is not talking so much about what God declares us to be as what God is making us into. And so the word that we would use would not be forensic righteousness. The word would be sanctification. This is what God is doing in us. He's working us. He's changing us one degree of glory at a time. Now, I know sanctification is a big churchy word that we don't use outside the four walls of this church building. But this righteousness is an inner life as it should be, filled with the love and the truth of God. And this is the craving that we should want in all things to become more and more and more like God as we walk this earth more and more like God. Let me crave that. Let me hunger for that. You know, when we see Jesus, we see God. And we should all want to conform more and more into that image. And that's what I believe the Sermon on the Mount is all about. This is what we should be passionate about. We should never just float along as Christians satisfied with our nice lives. No, this is a a call for intensity. It's a call for passion. It's a call for single-mindedness because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are focused on having the life of God formed within them. It's a constant dream, a dream that defines who they are. So what about you? What about us as a church? How are we doing in our pursuit of righteousness? Can I ask some questions? And I don't ask these questions to guilt. I just ask these questions to get you to think. Question number one. Why is it that those of us who are readers, man, we can consume that that latest mystery thriller in, boom, seconds. But oftentimes our Bibles are collecting dust on the shelf. Why do we often convince ourselves that we're too busy to participate in those actions which the church has historically undertaken in order to grow spiritually? I don't need that. Why why is it that we, man, we talk a really big game about prayer, but we often pray so little? Why do we sometimes give the impression by our actions that the true meaning of life is found in our job or our retirement fund or something like that when Jesus plainly says to us it's found in hungering and thirsting for righteousness? It seems to me that a lot of us, and I know I find myself in this same boat all the time, we make Jesus kind of just an add-on to our life. You know, just an add-on. He's something we do on Sunday. I go about my regular life for the rest of the time, and then I add Jesus onto my life. I can't be who we are. There's an interesting parallel to the Beatitudes found in the book of Psalms. I want to turn your attention to Psalm chapter 1. Notice this. Here's a picture of someone who craves righteousness. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Is your delight in the law of the Lord? His delight. I mean, it's what he longs for. He goes on in the end of verse 2, and on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand 
in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What a picture of a person who longs and craves God and righteousness. Now, that person in Psalm 1, the, the person who hungers and craves and thirsts for righteousness, they, they still go through battles in life. Don't misunderstand. They, they still go through trials and hardships, but they survive because their roots are deep in Christ. In a way, this is what Jesus is saying. We're not protected from the storms of life. No, there's no invisible shield around us to deflect disappointment and illness and temptation. We face those things, but those who hunger and thirst for righteousness survive. They make it through. Those who build their lives on the shallow pursuit of money or sex or prestige and power, they're building their house on the stand. But those who pursue God and godliness will endure with a tough, deep, peaceful joy of building on the solid foundation of God. And Jesus says that those who do that, who build on the solid foundation of God, not only are they blessed, but they will be filled. Do you want to be filled? You want to be filled to the brim, overflowing into the world around you? You see, it's when you're filled and overflowing, that's when purpose comes. That's when a life that matters comes. And so Jesus follows this up with this in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5. By the way, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus reminds us that people who are craving God are going to be righteous from the inside out. It's not just going to be skin deep. It's going to be from the inside out. One Sunday, as they drove home from church, a little girl turned to her mother and said, Mommy, there's something about the preacher's message this morning that I don't understand. The mother said, Oh, well, what is it? The little girl responded, Well, the preacher said that God is bigger than we are, and he said that God is so big that he could hold the whole world in his hands. Is that true? The mother replied, Well, yes, it's true, honey. But mommy, he also said that God comes to live inside us when we follow Jesus as our Savior. Is that true? Again, the mother assured the little girl that what the preacher had said was true. But with a puzzled look on her face, the little girl then said this. If God is bigger than us and he lives in us, wouldn't he show through? Wouldn't he show through? That's what Matthew 5, 13 through 16 is saying. Jesus should be showing through in every one of our lives. It's always been God's purpose that when he entered our lives, he would be allowed to so fill us and control us to, that he would show through, that he would be visible to anyone who looks in our attitudes, in our actions. Now remember that our righteousness should show forth in everything we do, not to bring attention to ourselves, but as Jesus says here in verse 16, to draw attention to God, to bring attention to him. 
Because here's what I've found in my short time on this earth. People really want to know if you really believe that what you believe is really real. People want to know if you really believe that what you believe is really real. And the way that we show people that we believe what we believe is really real, say that five times real fast, is by our actions, by what we do. Let me finish with one of my favorite quotes from A.W. Tozer. Now, Tozer lived long ago, and he uses some old English language, and so I'm going to translate it a little bit for our purposes today. But I just want you to hear this. Go ahead. I want you to put all your stuff away. I, I just, I'm, no distractions. Put your stuff away. No, I want you to hear what he says. You, I, if we had songbooks, I'd tell you to grab them and hold them, but we don't have those. All right, we ready? I really want you to hear this. Here's what Tozer said. Oh God, be exalted over my possessions. Nothing of earth's treasure small seems dear unto me if only you are glorified in my life. Be exalted over my friendships. I am determined that you shall be above all though I must stand deserted and all alone in the midst of the earth. Be exalted above my comforts, though it mean the loss of bodily comforts and the carrying of heavy crosses. I will keep my vow made this day before you. Be exalted over my reputation. Make me ambitious to please you, even if as a result I must sink into obscurity and my name be forgotten as a dream. Rise, O Lord, into thy proper place of honor above my ambitions, above my life, and my dislikes above my family, my health, and even my life itself. Let me decrease that you may increase. Let me sink that you may rise above. Ride forth upon me as you rode into Jerusalem, mounted upon that humble little beast, a colt, the foal of a donkey, and let me hear the children cry to you, Hosanna in the highest. May that be so for every single one of us here today. Be exalted over my life. Be exalted. Let Jesus show through this week in your life. Let him show through. Don't be afraid to open your mouth and speak the name of Jesus. Don't be afraid to invest in somebody that nobody else is investing in. Let Jesus show through. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week. 